If we as conservatives want people to believe that our way of life, that our view, our principles, our strategies are worth supporting, then we must demonstrate it to them so they can witness it for us for themselves. Welcome back to Lecture Me, an FRC podcast on issues of life, family, and religious liberty. I'm Matthew Mangiarachina. Robert Woodson Sr. is the founder and president of the Woodson Center. Dubbed the godfather of the neighborhood-based organization movement, Woodson has been a social activist since the 1960s and directed the National Urban League's Administration of Justice Division in the 1970s. Woodson served as a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and is the only person to receive some of the most prestigious conservative and liberal awards, including the MacArthur Genius Fellowship, the Bradley Foundation Prize, and the Presidential Citizens Medal. Woodson has written four books on the subject of youth crime and has appeared on several major network talk shows to discuss the issue, including Meet the Press, Nightline, and Oprah. Let's hear what he had to say. Some of my friends, when I received the... uh... MacArthur Award, they said, I'm the only non-communist ever to get it. (laughs) So I think I just sneaked in onto the wire. There is a prayer that I utter each time that I speak and I commend to you. That is, Lord, give me the strength to tell and pursue the truth, especially when it's inconvenient to me. Dr. King said that the highest form of maturity is the ability to be self-critical. Because if you want to go someplace you haven't been, it's important to do something you haven't done. Or as my grassroots philosophers say, if you keep doing what you do, you keep getting what you got. And so with that in mind, I would like to just tell you part of my journey Uh, in in exploring this issue has to do with my own personal biography, having raised in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in a blue-collar neighborhood. um, We we didn't have any professors living in our neighborhoods. They were all people who worked in factories and all, but 93% of the households had a man and a woman raising children. And, and, uh, And my dad died when I was nine, um, and leaving five children for my mother to raise who had a fifth grade education. So it meant I had to rely on a circle of friends as an extension of my family. As much as my, so I understand why kids join gangs. It isn't the organization that we object to, it's the criminal behavior of the organization. So I dropped out of high school at 17 when my friends who were a year older graduated, which meant that I was unaffiliated, and you do not live in urban communities unaffiliated. But I went into the the Air Force where I came to myself and matured and finished and got my GED and came out of the Air Force um, and went, my, my form of affirmative action was to go to school all year, (laughs) including the summers, and drive 60 miles to my job. And so it is with that background in mind, but then I became active in the civil rights movement, but I realized early on that 
many of those who suffered and sacrificed most in the struggle for civil rights did not benefit from the change. That immediately the civil rights movement, unfortunately, after we had the great victories in voting rights, it morphed into a race grievance industry. Now, the black community is often a moral barometer of the social and, and, and health of, of the nation. And we seem to have associated the black community with pathology. The assumption is that the problems that we're witnessing today, 70% of the families that are being raised in inner cities that are creating the problems, have always existed. Prior to the 1960s, there was never a correlation between uh, aberrant behavior and racism and poverty. There was never a, a, a there. Middle class did not mean how much money you made. Middle class was a set of values. The barber at, in my neighborhood was middle class. <laughs> he came in a suit. He didn't miss Sunday school for 30 years because <laughs> he wore that pin on his lapel. <laughs> but he was an upstanding citizen. And so, and so the, the myth is that racism and poverty are the cause of the problem. If that were the case, then between 1930 and 1940, when we had the Depression, there was a 25% unemployment rate, negative GNP. The unemployment rate in the black community was more like 40%. One would assume with these combination of circumstances that the community would go to hell in the handbasket. But the black community had a higher marriage formation rate than did the white community. We had social and economic and religious structures that insulated us from pathology. Grandparents were not afraid of their grandchildren during that period of time. The longest sustained reduction in poverty occurred between 1940 and 1960. And so, but something happened 85, in 1962, 85% of all black families had a man and a woman raising children. But something happened in the 60s to change all that. The question is, how do we go from 1962, with 85% of black families having a man and a woman raising children, to a decline at what happened? How did this cliff? We fell off the cliff to the point where only 30% of children a day are being raised in two-parent households. What happened? Well, I'll explain to you what happened. If you can read about it in uh, Fred Siegel's book, The Future Once Happened Here, Manhattan Institute. What happened was following the watch riots, some social scientists, Cloward Piven at Columbia University School of Social Work, they concluded on the left that one of the ways that we can emphasize the contradictions of capitalism and one of the ways that we can begin to address poverty is through income redistribution. And, one of the, and so therefore, one of the ways to, of accomplishing that is just flood the, the system, the welfare system with recipients. But there were social um, restrictions or, or a stigma associated with being on relief. But it's just changing, and so what they said, it is important to disconnect work from income, 
and make that a public policy. And what will happen then is that families will disintegrate, dropout rates will occur, drug addiction will increase, and therefore we will pour. So, so, so welfare went from social insurance to a welfare right to reparations. And there was a combination of groups that supported that. And, and just uh, passing a policy was insufficient to accomplish this. There had to be some help from institutions of government. You had the Lindsay administration, and then you had the poverty programs in Washington. They opened special offices in New York and other major cities to actively recruit people on welfare. The women's movement, the black power movement, attacked the nuclear family as being Western European and racist to hold the black community to a two-parent uh, family was actually racist. The women's movement wanted to, to, to minimize the role of fathers, so they joined. The black power movement did. And then the OEO offices, and then lawsuits were filed when there were restrictions when women had to report to welfare offices to report the, the paternity of the fathers. Lawsuits were filed and said this was a violation of their privacy rights. <clears throat> so we removed the stigma. And so what happened between a short period of time of about seven years, thousands and thousands of blacks flooded the welfare system and what Clown and Piven and Elliman predicted came true. As you could disconnect work from income, fathers became redundant, and then crime began to increase, a dropout rate, all of the social disorganization ended up having this detrimental effect. In fact, the largest increase in welfare in the city of New York occurred when the unemployment rate for black men was 4%. We actually had a labor force uh, need, but yet people were flooding into the system. And predictably what happened was you saw the decline, and that's when, when young uh, institutions began to decline. That's when pathology began to take hold. And you have a mess that you're in now. And so the question and the challenge, ladies and gentlemen, what should we do about it? What are the solutions? Well, people on the left assume that the, the problem with poverty is that we need more money, more social workers, when in fact 70% of all dollars going to the poor do not go to the poor. They go to those that serve poor people. They ask not which problems are solvable, but which ones are fundable this year. So you have created a commodity out of poor people where a professional class of people are paid and their careers are contingent upon having large groups of people to serve. And it has powerful racial implications too because um, only two out of 10 whites with college education works for government. Six out of 10 blacks with college education works for government. So the, our middle class is anchored in government, and they are the caretakers of the poor. And so when you have this situation, a structural kind of disincentives for empowering poor people, the question is, what are the answers? Well, un unfortunately, the left believes that, that we haven't spent enough 
So we just need to continue on policies that have failed. And unfortunately, on the right, they have concluded that, well, since what we have done, spending $22 trillion over 50 years hasn't worked, then what we ought to do is just cut those budgets and throw open the doors of the free enterprise system and let meritocracy determine winners and losers. There's an old African proverb that when the bull elephants fight, the grass always loses. And so therefore, it is important, ladies and gentlemen, as we talk about solutions, is to properly identify the problem. You cannot generalize about poor people. We must disaggregate it. There are four categories of poor people that's on it. There are category one are people just broke. Their character is intact. They use the welfare system as it was intended, as an ambulance service, not as a transportation system. They use it as a bridge over troubled times. They respond to, to opportunity. Category two are, uh, are people whose character is intact, but they have made a strategic decision that the disincentives for working are too great, and they just opt out. Like the woman in Milwaukee, a mom raising a five-year-old daughter on welfare and managed to save $5,000 of her welfare check to send her daughter to college, and she was charged with a felony and fined $5,000 plus court costs. So she concluded, well, I'll just stay on welfare. Category three are people who are disabled, and even in the disabled population, there are Appalachian whites who won't permit their 15-year-old to learn to read because the family will lose $680 in SSI payments. So we must do something to fix that. But the fourth category are the people who concerned us. These are the people who, of course, they are poor because they are morally and spiritually impoverished. And, and just giving programs, they're drug addicts, they're, they're living irresponsible life, they're predators. Just giving money and opportunity to that group injures them with the helping hand. It is category four that my organization specializes in reaching. The problem is people on the left tend to look at all poor people as if they're category one, and people on the right tend to look at all poor people as if they're category four. And therefore, we cannot have a reasonable discussion about remedies because we're talking about different populations. And so the challenge is, what is the, the, the solution for people in category four? Well, what we have found is that, uh, first of all, we must look to a different source of knowledge. And we must look at different experts. That's why I believe that the principles that operate in our market economy should operate in our social economy. In our market economy, only 3% of the people are entrepreneurs, but they generate 70% of all the new jobs. According to David Birch, Entrepreneurs tend to be C students, not A students. A students come back to the university's dean and teach. C students come back and endow. Because in our market economy, the entrepreneur tends to be someone who's able to act in the presence of their own doubts and uncertainty and are willing to fail and bounce back and come back. But if you're very smart, you've got to have all the answers before you start, and by the time you act, the opportunity's gone. <laughs> and so 
using that, but also we must look for a different source of knowledge. Most of the policy uh, 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 people in Washington look to professional experts. You look at who's having conferences on poverty. They're the Brookings Institute, Heritage, and the American Enterprise, all well-credentialed individuals who have been writing and studying the failures of poor people for about 40 years. And so knowledge, new knowledge about how to solve problems will not come from academic studies. Uh, James C. Scott at Yale says that that's epistemy knowledge. Professional knowledge, what we, look, what we should be seeking is metis knowledge, and that is common sense knowledge that is known and practiced by everyday people in those communities. He, he likens uh, epistemic knowledge, professional knowledge that you get from scholars. It's like a, a ship captain that's able to learn the skills to navigate a ship across a big ocean. You can teach that. But when that ship gets to the port of Baltimore, this captain turns his ship over to a harbor master because that harbor master knows that harbor. Through common sense experience, and therefore that's how the ship. And so I grasp, so the new source of experts are not the scholars who are studying it. In fact, what, what distresses me uh, so much is that a lot of conservative scholars are more like public policy medical examiners. All we're getting are autopsy reports where we talk about people, if you're born single mom, living in public housing, you dropped out of school, life is over for you. And they offer no prescriptions. You can never learn anything, ladies and gentlemen, from studying failure except how to fail. Therefore, I challenge my conservative scholars, colleagues to offer the American public a different vision that we propose. And that is, if you say that 70% of the people in these high crime, drug infested neighborhoods are raising children that are dysfunctional, it means that 30% are not. But you don't see any studies of the capacities of low income people. So what we do at the Woodson Center as we go into low-income, high-crime, drug-infested neighborhoods, and we go to the 30% of the households to find out how people are able to raise children that are not dropping out of school, they're not in jail, they're not on drugs, and what is it that they are doing that distinguishes them from the 70%? So the grassroots leaders are the social entrepreneurs. They have come up with unique coping mechanisms that we use. And so what we do is we, we recruit among the 30% and act like we're a venture capitalist without money. <laughs> and that is like, like in our market economy, we go and look for people who are, who are having these kind of achievement against the odds and we provide them with money, we provide them with assistance. A venture capitalist looks for an honest entrepreneur 
And what they do is they try to take what's working in someone's garage and infuse capital, but also technical support because a venture capitalist know too much money can suffocate an event, too much can starve it to death. And so the challenge is how do you take what's working for 25 kids in a high crime neighborhoods that are managing to get out and achieve? How do we look at them as a social entrepreneur? How do we look at them as the experts, the anti-poverty experts? How do we insinuate money and, 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 and training so that they can grow along a continuum so they're helping 50 kids today Next year, they're helping 500 kids. And then a year after that, they're helping 5,000. We've seen examples of that with Kimmy Gray, a woman in Washington, D.C., in the 70s, abandoned by her husband at age 22 with five children and on welfare. She gets off welfare in three years and sends all five kids to college. And when her neighbors said, how do you do that? She starts to open her house to teach. And when the first four kids come back, they are ashamed of their neighborhood, so she organizes the residents into a resident management corporation, takes charge, drives the drug dealers out, starts to teach children, and, they, and, and she has developed enterprises on her own in 10 years, they sent 680 kids on to college, eliminating teen pregnancy in her community. Bertha Kilke at Cochrane did the same thing. They were on, if you go on YouTube, Bertha Kilke 60 Minutes, you can see Marley Safer spent 23 minutes right up the street from Pruitt Igo that was destroyed. Bertha Kilke came in organize her residents to take control of their environment, introduce discipline, all of the virtues of our founders, found expression in these two islands of excellence. I worked for four months with Suzanne St. Pierre, who was a producer of 60 Minutes, and they did their due diligence to make sure that when they put that on air, it, they were doing what they said they did. You saw market rate housing built right across from what was once the most dangerous public housing in the country. And yet, with this experience, with this proof, Jack Kemp was the only Republican served to take any interest in this. And through Jack Kemp's leadership, we led the Republican Study Committee with Newt Gingrich and Vin Weber. These they were all freshmen. Republicans did something that they didn't do before. They held hearings in public housing, not to ask about pathology, but to have the people explain how they achieved against the odds. When the Democrats found out about it, because it was on a front page news, anytime Republicans show interest in poor people, it's front page news. <laughs> and then they had to rush and have hearings to do what the Republicans did, Jack Kemp said to me, Bob, these are seven amendments that the residents said we need to get government off our back because if we increase our income and reduce our cost, the money gets recaptured by the federal government. If we, if we have a contractor that doesn't pick up the dumpsters on Friday night 
and rats take over. But once we took control, we fired that contractor and hired another private contractor on the condition that they hire 15 residents and they want a Georgetown service. And that is they want three pickups a week. And the whole, ch once you give the power and control to the people suffering the problem, then they transform that whole community there and around the country. So they have created islands of excellence. We also have it, ladies and gentlemen, my final problem that I, that, that I think is a solution. The foster care system has about 500,000 kids every year. 70% of all people who are in prisons have spent time in the foster care system. It's the largest contributor to human trafficking in the country. And, and yet, if you were to go to a Republican-controlled state, the system looks as bad as it is when it's run by the Democrats. And so what we have done in looking for solutions is that we've gone to Pastor Buster Sores, First Baptist Church of Lincoln Gardens in Somerset, New Jersey, when Chrissy Todd Whitman, the governor, said, we've got 53 babies that are border babies where drug-addicted mothers have left and abandoned them in the hospitals. Buster came in with his church and set up a foster care system place all of those babies with members of the church. Every one of them had been adopted. He then set up and trained 350 families to become licensed foster homes. They placed 1,400 uh, children in foster homes and adopted 300, taking them out of the system. <clears throat> Pastor Soares has the model. What needs to happen is that the conservative movement needs to declare a war on foster care system and, pass, and enable Pastor Soares to recruit 400 churches all over this country and we can find homes for all of these babies. This should be a, an example of what the conservative movement does to address the problems of poverty in America and that is to join in common community with grassroots leaders that have demonstrated over the year they've got solutions but what they lack is recognition, they lack money. Let me just end by reading something to you uh, from uh, a young man, Brandon Logan. At the, uh, he's with the Director Center for Families at the Texas Public Policy Institute. He said that if, if conservatives are to help restore America's inner cities, they must be willing to go where they have never gone and listen to people they have never met to learn from those who have proven that they can make a difference in the lives of the poor. They must identify, recognize, and support these agents of individual and community uplift and provide resources, expertise, funding that can strengthen and expand their transformative work. If conservative principles are to prevail, it won't be by offering superior arguments, but by demonstrating that they can produce better people. And I think we won't be by offering superior arguments. There are two people who I think demonstrate uh, effectiveness. One is Joe Lewis, the other is Jesus. <laughs> when Joe Lewis fought at a time when his opponents were racist, the fans were racist who came to see him, all the odds were stacked against him. 
Joe Lewis said, when you are faced with these overwhelming odds against you, knock the sucker out. <laughs> Put him down. Jesus confronted the same doubters when the servants of John the Baptist came to him and said, are you the one that shall be seeked another? Jesus didn't respond with a white paper or reciting his resume. What the Savior did was heal in their presence and say, go tell him what you saw. So Joe Lewis made his point by laying people down, and Jesus made his by raising people up. But both relied upon evidence to make their point. If we as conservatives want people to believe that our way of life, that our view, our principles, our strategies are worth supporting, then we must demonstrate it to them so they can witness it for, us, for themselves and not just engage in opposition for what the other side has done. Chris Gasick is the Coalition's Senior Research Fellow and has been gracious enough to join us for today's episode. Chris, thanks for being here. It's great to be here, Matt. It's a really important topic that we're about to mm. talk a little bit about. Yeah. So Woodson said that in the 60s, social welfare, he said, quote, morphed into a race grievance industry. And then he gives us all the statistics on how black Americans were better off before all that happened. Do you, do you think it was simply just poor implementation? Like he says, you know, he gives a lot of reasons for that. Well, you know, one of the things I just want to say, like going back to the lecture and listening to, you know, it's important. You gave a nice introduction about him and his career, but it's important to remember that. So we're, we're talking to somebody who's been in this field maybe 50, 60 years. And so he's, in a sense, distilling all this wisdom. And when I was listening to the watching the lecture, I had to go back. I was just backing up, you know, time and time and time again, just sort of get these, these nuggets of information because he was, everything was so rich, right? I mean, so there's this sort of discussion about this, you know, it comes like about 12 minutes, 12 minutes in or something like mm -hmm. that, where he's discussing about these, these failures, like the, the fact that you have 85% of families in, you know, like early 1960s, black families are, you know, both parents are in the home with children, right? right? And now it's something like 30, right? right. So you have that he kind of talks about the, the sociologists and other kind of academics who I think because they were trying to reduce poverty, right, they then introduced these policies that start injecting money into households, right? Mm -hmm. But then there are these rules and they become, at least from what I can sort of gather, they're, 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 they have a destructive, you know, independent effect on the family structure. And so this sort of has all these sort of downstream effects. Mm -hmm. I think one of the... To me, the overarching theme of everything he says, right, is what you, you know, I think, and I think he thought that was a tremendous error because he points out that from the 19, from about 1940 to 1960, you saw the, the largest decrease in black poverty in, the, in American history. Right. And so what is, what is all this sort of all about, right? He's sort of saying, we did all this on our own. We didn't, you know, the, you can have programs that may be helpful, but if that trajectory had been allowed to continue, mm -hmm. things would have been much better. But one of the things that he points out, I think, is that, and this is for conservatives, he sort of says this later on, and I think it would have worked at that time too. It's like, if you've got a problem in the community there, find people who are doing things that work and work with those people, right? right. Failure can't teach you anything but failure. 
And so I, obviously they didn't have the track record that we do now after, I think he said, what, $22 trillion or something over mm-hmm. 50 years. I mean, this is a huge amount of money. Right. I mean, it's, it's mind-bogglingly huge. Right. It, it sounds like he's not necessarily saying get rid of all government involvement or federal funding on it because he mentions how they were, there was some organization or, or group who had taken food stamps and then basically did the distributing of the food and that that was very successful or that they had public housing and by turning around the community where the public housing was, the housing itself and the people living in it were doing much better off than you see in other places. Right. I mean, there are, uh, sprinkled throughout the lecture, there are a number of interesting kind of elements. And I'm trying to go back through my notes and find one in particular where there was a, I think her name was Tammy Gray, who's a woman in in Washington, D.C., and she essentially took her housing project and kind of almost incorporated it. They had their own sort of government structure, and then she ended up accomplishing all these amazing things. She had been, she was a single mother with five kids at the age of 22 and just you know, she ended up going to college and doing all of these things. But mm-hmm. like you're saying, it, it wasn't that he's saying you just, you know, you sort of cut these things off because you really can't do that now. I mean, it's we're, no, we're not in 1962 mm-hmm. where you have the social framework underneath it to sort of do that sort of thing. You have to sort of find the people. And this is, I think, the, the point of what he and Dean Nelson were getting at was that you have to find the the, the people, the infrastructure in these these communities, and work with them. And one of the things I thought was interesting uh, in the Q and A is that there was a pastor from Richmond who said, "Look, you know, we also everybody sort of assumes I I think he was sort of implying this that we know how to help with these problems." He said, "You know, we're pastors. We're trained for evangelizing, right? For evangelization. Right. We're not trained to you know deal with." Like the community outreach. Yeah, and and sort of how you kind of help people. And and so you you need to build up these capacities within these structures. And I think, you know, Woodson sees that there are going to be a lot of these sort of kind of mediating institutions. It's kind of jargon. But I mean, it's like it's not the government. It's, It's individuals acting. And so one of these is the church. But the church, you know, as the pastor said, they want to help, but they need you know, they need some assistance in, in sort of telling people how to, you know, what do they do when people come to them? Where do they send them? And these sorts of things. Right. So that's that's important. Right. He mentions like the church and the family together. I mean, at first he's talking about the family, or he even mentions the incarceration rate related to foster care. He said something like 70% of people in foster care, or 70% of people incarcerated were in foster care at one time, implying... Well, and that's one of the interesting parts of the discussion. So I'm I'm glad you brought that up, because I think he makes this bold statement. It says, conservatives should oppose the foster care system, which is really interesting. I mean, so this is a very sort of categorical statement that he makes. And there are a number of dimensions to this. One is the point that you made, that it sort of ends up, a system like this you just would not want to keep. And he gives an example, I think it was in Philadelphia, of some community leaders, maybe pastors, who had gone and, you know, found kids and found placement for them in churches, you know, church mm-hmm. families, yeah. and all of these kids did very well. And I think that's essentially the part of the core of what he's saying. Find people and institutions that can be a success, work with them, ask them to kind of you know, to help you. And this is very sort of on the ground, you know, sort of very experientially based, kind of wisdom based learning. That's everything about Woodson is, is like that. Mm-hmm. You have these, you just sort of feel like you're like drinking, the, you know, getting yeah. this fire hose of wisdom yeah. sort of being, you know, put down your throat. But yeah, he's basically doing over half a century. Almost. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but one of the things I just want to go back to the, the foster care, he made a point, and it, it's, it's really critical that the foster care system is apparently a huge kind of funnel, you know, a highway 
for sex trafficking. Right. So I don't know how, you know, this is something that is, is apparently an enormous problem. I was just listening to a, a Mark Levin episode last night where he had a, a there was a, a film out called Eight Days about uh, that this gentleman had produced, and it's about his sister who was sex trafficked, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, he goes through the, the whole history of this. But part of this is that, the, you know, he talks about the, how the foster care system is just a disaster. So this is another area where we need to sort of rethink this. And I think Woodson sort of says the way you rethink it is that you you place people through churches and with, you know, people with stable families. And so the problem, though, is, I mean, I think we run into on, on our sort of religious freedom side on, on at FRC here is, will the government do this? I think the left is very hostile to religious institutions being sort of a, a place where you can go. We, we saw in Philadelphia that they've they've been excluded from Catholic charities, has been right. excluded from adoptions, I think, and, right. and other sorts of social, which is just completely insane. Right. Well, because they said they'd refuse <coughs> same-sex couple placement. All of it seems to really just go back to the family unit, which he gets at in the beginning and then comes back to later. This foster care system's a mess, and part of the reason it was a mess in the first place is because the family broke down and sort of started funneling all this into there cause things like the sex trafficking problem, the drugs, the crime, the education, and all that stuff. Well, and I think and the foster care system is, is like this. There are complex incentive structures in it. People get paid to, to be in, involved in it. And I mean, one of the things that it made me immediately realize when he said this about sex trafficking is, well, how are they, how are they determining who is in the foster care system, right? What, what kind mm-hmm. of background checks are there and these sorts of things, right? right. But the point that he's making is that through the, through the state, you just end up having people who sort of show up and they don't. You don't know that much about them. If you have somebody, let's say families who are going to, you know, a number of churches, you know they're going to church on a regular basis. You know that they have a certain set of beliefs. You know, maybe these people, you have somebody like a pastor or the church itself that knows them, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a whole set of filters and, and relationships. They're brought into, you know, these families that probably go to the church, right? So the, the kid in the foster family is going to come in and, and attend the church, and I mean, most likely. And so there's going to be all these sort of supporting institutions and people around them, maybe, you know, friends and things like this. So it's a, it's a different environment that surrounds you. I wanted to close out with one of the many things he said that were really, you know, I think wrap up his point nicely. When he was talking about virtue, he said, watching the individuals do these things, that Americans are thirsty to see virtue, right? Mm-hmm. There's the guy who returns a bag of money. He's saying, publicize the expression of virtue and then determine the motivations of those people who are, you know, turning in bags full of, full of money. And that, that leads into the idea that when you're, when you're giving control to the people who have the problem, they create their own islands of excellence, and that that's how we create superior results, is by showing them a superior example of what to do. Chris, thank you for joining. Always a pleasure. If you want more from Lecture Me, visit frc.org or download the Stanfirm app.